0: This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I am your host, the writer and narrator of Mindframe, David Moten. With me, as always, is my producer and silent partner, Brent Van Tassel. And we're bringing you another episode of Mindframe. And you definitely want to go back and listen to the previous one before you listen to this one, even though that's always the case. In this case, it's especially so because this is part two of the story Um, that began last time. This is an interlude. This is interlude two, part two. And as I said in the intro of the last episode, they were sort of crafted to be a Christmas bonus episode uh, released in time for Christmas. And uh, we wanted to make sure that you knew to listen to the previous part before you listen to this because the story doesn't end in the first one. There's just a pause. And then this one takes off um, exactly where the last one was. We just broke them up because of length, Um, because these interludes ended up being uh, quite long. This, in fact, is our longest episode of Mindframe to date, aside from our sit-downs. And I suspect there's a really good chance it will be the longest episode of Mindframe in the future as well. But speaking of Mindframe, if you like what you're listening to, you can go to patreon.com backslash Mindframe podcast to support us. Uh, part of that support uh, is a tier that would allow you access to sit-down episodes where the three of us sit and talk about the episodes, what's going on in them, some of the twists, some of the mental dexterity, um, writing process, all sorts of things. So if that's something that's that's uh, interesting to you then definitely check out uh, Patreon. And also there are different tiers that that give you different rewards such as unique t-shirts and other cool stuff. We are a Podbelly original Um, You can go to podbelly.com to find educational content on how to podcast and to find a really great directory of other episodes that you can listen to. So um, without further ado, we will get back to um, the other Josephine and the story of her as she uh, continues to try to dream alien dreams. And as a final warning, um, there are some explicit Moments in this particular episode, there is some violence, there is explicit language, uh, some racially charged language, etc., that is all sort of a necessity for the story, but it is a not safe for work episode, and we just wanted to warn you of that before you sit down to listen. So, Merry Christmas. Interlude 2, Part 2. They stood in the middle of a darkened street. Alpha had trained her how to bear the shifts in reality, such as this how to spread its impact over the entire psyche. Josephine had, in fact, trained for years mastering techniques to diffuse things hard to fathom, ways to slow the mind and steady the body when reality bent. These techniques, micro-meditations and biofeedback, made Josephine able to handle the strange demeanor of the sender and this sudden shift in time and space. In this city she found herself in, there were archaic street lamps, Odd things that stood on vertical metal poles that supported an arm which hung over the pavement. The illumination was rust-colored and cast long shadows and a catonic afterglow to the city. Josephine only noticed the lit lamppost by contrast because she stood beside one that wasn't on, nor was the next one or the next. The first one to breathe light was two broken blocks down. An odd siren drifted on the unkind air like a relic from a classical motion picture. It was cold and the streets were filthy lined with detritus of every imaginable shape and size there were broken glass bottles some sort of medical syringes why used healing supplies would be in the street was beyond josephine she noticed numerous glass vials smaller than her pinky laying about and half a block away was what looked like the burned skeleton of an old automobile stripped of tires panels seats everything a wind blew and carried a heavy flurry of snow with it. Thanks to the snow, nature would mask the litter, at least until spring thaw or a municipal street cleaner came. Josephine was suddenly and terribly cold, wearing nothing but the hospital gown, not even any shoes. Here you go, the sender said. The form of Bill Campana handed Josephine a sack from the Seven Days store on the Tehachapi. You owe me five clothing chits. or seven... The sweater's pretty nice, so it might cost more. I'm no fashionista. She took the bag. It had some denim pants, a sweater, a pair of short boots and underwear. Don't be shy. Consider this a frame you're visiting, yes? And I'll turn my back and cover my eyes so I don't see all your junk hanging out. Nobody can see you, the sender said, turning around and covering Bill's eyes with his hands. Her eyes, the sender said she identified as female. You need not turn around, sender. I'm not shy about my body, especially with someone from an alien species who doesn't care about the human body except as maybe an oddity. "'Your body is far from odd,' the sender laughed with Bill Campana's laugh. "'Even with my eyes covered, I see your entire naked body, Josephine. I see it from an empirical view based on measurements. I see it from an objective human view that values certain reproductive, shall we say, roundness as being attractive.' I see it from your own view, and the harsh judgments that even someone as enlightened as you hold onto. And I see it from my point of view, which is quite interesting because I only have eyes in this dreaming space when I'm here to talk to you or the one you call Alpha. Sight took me a long time to master. By the time the sender was done talking, Josephine had the underwear, pants, socks, and boots on. Her feet were wet and dirty from the sleet in the street, but it felt good to have them covered. She put the hospital robes in the bag and set it on the ground while she put on the sweater and jacket. The sender was right, it was a very nice sweater. She hadn't felt anything as soft as this in years. Out of habit, she collected the bag and looked for a trash receptacle. Here, the sender said, and took the bag from her. The sender instantly tossed it in with the rest of the filth in the gutter shaking her head. That type of disregard for the ecosystem was jarring to Josephine. Nobody would do that, lest they get a downvote. My, 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 you don't like littering. That's very earth-friendly. But this is not that. There is no here, here. What are we doing here? Josephine asked, echoing the sender's language. And where is here? Josephine felt primally foolish because her jaw was chattering in the cold and she couldn't control it. She could meditate and gain more control through biofeedback, but this time with the sender was precious, not to be wasted on a full meditation. You can't really meditate anyway, Josephine. You're in a dream state. Your body is quite warm aboard the Tehachapi. Josephine remembered some other things that the Alpha said. The sender would probe around in her mind, but didn't mean to. It was just the only way. It's not the only way, but it's the easiest, the sender added. My species is incapable of judging another's beliefs or state of mind. We share thoughts as easily as you share body language. All are free to think what they will, and none are judged. I know, quite an alien concept. Imagine what that would do to our elections if we had elections. But yes, where are we? When are we? We are in Washington, DC. The year is circa 1993. It's the best I can do with 1993 anyway. And why are we here? This is the capital of democracy. This is the start of the longest period of economic expansion in the history of the United States of America, until right before the first great pandemic just ahead of the world vote war. I want you to see what the capital city of the wealthiest nation and one of the wealthiest time periods of its history lived like. At the time, the media called it the murder capital of the world, so it had that distinction as well. Rape was high, robbery, violent crime, etc. And yes, if this were an essay, it would be using the rhetorical mode of compare and contrast. So take good notes and put your thinking cap on. The sender handed Josephina Beeney, which she felt funny putting on because of the thinking cap comment, but her ears were awfully cold. She followed the sender as she walked into a nearby housing unit. It was three stories tall, made of brick, and a few of the windows were replaced with some type of wood composite instead of glass. She doubted it was intentional or aesthetic, based on necessity and market forces that would have dominated everything in 1993. Yes, they are poor. So, Poe, they can't afford the R. The building is legally abandoned, but it is very much inhabited. The particle board can be scavenged from construction sites, unlike the broken glass, stolen. Let's go inside. Josephine followed the sender up a short flight of stairs. It looked like there was a half basement level that had windows at street level, and these entrance stairs made the first floor higher than the street by half a story. The door had no doorknob, and there was a panel of some sort with a speaker on it, most of which had been pulled off Rendering this communication device useless. Inside was a small foyer. It smelled of urine and stale beer and human fecal matter. But just over those smells was a burning plastic or a chemical aroma oozing from every corner of the building. It was awful. There was a series of what had to be old mailboxes inset in the wall. Most of them were bent and pried open or missing the small metal locking doors entirely. Of the few mailboxes that were still intact, One read 2C and a piece of tape was posted just below it. It read, Ball, in a unique bulbous colorful font. She had seen similar writing on the outside of the building sprayed in paint, but she couldn't read what it said. That's us, the Ball residence, just upstairs. They walked up a flight and the burning smell got stronger. The sender tapped her nose and said, that's crack, a cocaine derivative, highly addictive. The scourge of the era, the cause for so much crime and murder. There's pretty definitive proof that the spread of this drug was started by the Central Intelligence Agency of the United States of America on the West Coast in order to fund illegal activities. Ironically, the CIA's main charge was to secure the nation, but they almost single handedly destroyed a decade of life in inner cities. Josephine knew a bit about drug addiction. Not in any real sense, but she remembered a unit on it in her history class when she was 13 how it ravaged the body and mind in different awful and unique ways depending on the drug of choice. She was taught it was spread by street gangs and organized crime, not a branch of any world power. They closed in on a door. On it was an old metal C and a cleaner imprint on the door where the two used to be. Below it in that same font as the mailbox, someone had written to see or not to see. That is the question. Funny, the sender said, Pointing to the strange writing. The irony is simply delicious. What does it mean, or not to see? It means one of the children inside is a very smart, very funny young man. Come on. The sender walked to the door and passed through it like a phantom. Josephine wasn't sure how to do that, even in a frame or wherever this was. She heard a lock flick open. The door opened and the sender pushed Bill Campana's face through the doorway. There is no spoon, Josephine. You won't get that one at all. Josephine walked in. Music was playing from a large device that had speakers larger than dinner plates embedded in its metal frame. It was classical hip hop, two men going back and forth with each other in a verbal interplay about someone named Santa Claus. There was a loop of brass horns with a scratching sound. Beneath it all was a constant jingle of a set of small bells that seemed incongruous with this style of music. At the table, there was a man in a one-piece set of filthy waffle fabric that was once off-white, but was now reminiscent of the filth from a chimney. He was half-asleep in his chair, a tobacco cigarette hanging limply between two fingers. The smell of the tobacco was a welcome relief since it covered up the smell of the burning chemicals for a moment. At the same table was a child, maybe twelve or thirteen, using nubs of various colored crayons, pens, and colored pencils to practice that old font she kept seeing. They all seemed to be African American. The child was currently drawing on the inside of a white paper bag stained with some sort of food grease. The apartment was far smaller than even a single housing chit would afford for an individual under WorldGov. For a family, it was utterly unfair. This main room seemed to act as both kitchen and living space, and there appeared to be one bedroom in the back. A small tattered metal sculpture was on the center of the table. It was shaped roughly like a pine tree and was made of fake branches supporting hundreds of tiny flaps of what looked like a highly shiny aluminum foil or other thin metal. There was a strand of small lights winding around it and then around the circumference of the table. It was covered in white pieces of paper made from the same type of bag the child covered on. They were all cut round and taped with a clear tape onto the branches. In colorful handwriting, most had the word ornament written on them. One said Santa, one said Mama, another said the Twins. A few said McDonald's with a great yellow looping M, but those seemed printed instead of hand-drawn. Perched atop the tree was the plastic-molded head of what looked like a grimacing turtle with a red cloth mask covering its squinting, angry eyes. A woman sat watching an old cathode ray television set that seemed at the end of its life cycle. The top half was a bleached out smear of what should have been the bottom half of the image. Below that was a mostly black and white scene. It appeared to be animated dolls of some sort, most likely filmed one frame of movement at a time. One character was a Caucasian male with a bald head and a dense white beard and curling mustache. The other character, oddly, Was perhaps a horse with a nose that glowed red and illuminated the old man, making him shield his eyes. The woman watched it with no sound, the hip hop music filling the space instead. It's a reindeer, not a horse. And that's St. Nicholas. It's a children's show from 1964 about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. He guides Santa's flying sleigh through storms with the brightness of his nose. It is science fiction? Josephine asked an overlap of clever marketing, really. It's a sort of corporate, culture, religious overlap in a way that makes your species ideal to join the Cal Democracia. First, the old man is Saint Nicholas. He was a pagan or pseudo-religious figure from antiquity, but a beverage company called Coca-Cola popularized the figure to sell more of its sugary soft drink in the winter months when nobody wanted it due to the cold. Meanwhile, a department store called Montgomery Ward wanted to lure children in to whine until their parents bought them every single toy. They created a free coloring book that told the story of Rudolph. This was in 1939. It was an immediate success and drew millions of children in, so their parents would buy them Christmas presents. This film is from neither one of those corporate entities, but their characters were incredibly popular for well over a century. Josephine said, I know of Christmas, of course. A friend of mine in grammar school was Christian. They didn't ever mention any of these things. Oh, the Ball family most certainly aren't Christian, not by any true religious standard, and these televised saints are saints of capitalism, not Catholicism. But boy, are we digressing. You can see that crib in the back? This is the last of our tragic characters, the twin asleep in his manger. The woman on the sofa took up a hollow tube of glass with a bulbous end, She worked what looked like a small white rock into it and lit it with a small plastic lighter. She inhaled and exhaled a great puff of smoke. The smell of burning plastic and maybe toxic rubber bloomed in the air. What happened next was so sudden and violent, Josephine could barely process it. The boy who was coloring moaned, no mama, no, as the man suddenly sprang to life in a twisted manifestation of hatred and rage. Bitch, he said, leaping over to the table in front of the couch and snatching the small pipe from her hand. Didn't I tell you the last rock was mine? The fuck, bitch? He exhaled in a long bellow. He flipped the table away from them both, grabbed the woman by her hair, and pulled her to her feet. The woman said, no, Manny, no, I'm sorry. We get more. We get more. With what? You gonna sell that pussy? You gonna suck a dope man's dick with those gray-ass lips? Don't nobody want you. Don't nobody want you. He flung her face into the cathode ray tube. The effect didn't meet his standard, so he did it a second time, and a third. The woman fell crying with a bloodied face and mouth. The tube no longer functioned. "'Not my mama!' the boy cried. He jumped up and ran to protect the woman. He stood defiant with a blue-colored pencil in his hand, brandishing it, like a weapon. "'Little nigga, you must be out your mind!' the man howled. He strode to the kitchen, grabbed a large knife from the sink overflowing with dishes, and walked back to the child and woman. She was trying to shield the boy with her body and the man stabbed indiscriminately. There were screams of pain and horror as the knife found its mark in the woman's thigh and pelvis and stomach. As she writhed and fell, he kept stabbing at them both, landing a blow directly to the child's throat. He gasped and gurgled and fell to the floor, slowly drowning in his own blood. The man stabbed the woman 10 more times, threw the knife on the couch and stormed out the front door. He came back in seconds later covered in blood to grab his cigarettes and a large, filthy jacket. He left. The music was now a song with several men singing a chorus asking the world to let it snow. Their voices ranged from a deep bass to a high tenor. The sound was offset by the final wet slaps for air coming from the child's throat. And as those slaps fell dormant in the lifeless child's jagged throat, all was penetrated by the wail of an infant. Out of sheer instinct, Josephine ran to the back to help the child. In the crib were two babies. One was still and ashen and obviously dead. The other was keening with a voice renewed by fear and the violence it had just heard and couldn't understand. It was maybe four months old. The sender stood next to Josephine and indicated the baby saying, and thus, the line of the Ball family is reduced to one. That man was just a boyfriend. He was killed two weeks later, according to police records, trying to steal some shoes from a 15-year-old with a gun. Josephine thought she might retch. No spoon, my dear. You don't have a stomach here, and it doesn't have food in it, and it wouldn't do much to stand out in this apartment anyway. What, what is this? Josephine said, mouth watering with bile. Did this really happen? Yes, this is a reenactment, of course. It was created by our MI based upon crime scene photos, interviews, etc. I tried to add accurate set pieces like what was on the radio. An old pulp magazine called TV Guide confirmed the show that was on the television. Was there an outcry? Was this a scandal? Oh, dear Lord, no. This made the fifth page of the paper. It was utterly commonplace. And what happened to the baby? Well, he went on to survive the world vote war since he was gone from D.C. when they hit it. He was one of the first framers recruited from the old Americas. It took a generation or two to get most of this nation on board since there was so much resentment here based on deaths and the reappropriation of wealth. This man, this baby, Alfonso Ball, was a very vocal advocate for African Americans to surrender to WorldGov during the invasion. He argued that WorldGov's path and their lack of prejudices would, quote, let my black brothers and sisters from South Carolina to San Francisco taste their first true freedom since the Middle Passage robbed us of our history. He was the first in a long line of some of the most powerful framers on Earth. Five generations now. The sender put her hand beside Bill Campana's mouth as if she was telling a secret and didn't want others to hear between you and me. I almost went with the ball kid instead of you. Josephine touched her wrist to feel her pulse. She refocused herself, felt the panic pass, and could process this very important moment now. The sender said, Good, you shook that right off. I think I made the right choice after all. Astounding control. I'm speechless. This was the capital city of the most powerful nation on Earth? The wealthiest? That's right. WorldGov doesn't lie about pre-war living conditions. It was far worse than this in a great many places on Earth. The appeal of the CalDemocratia's promise of food for all, shelter, security, education. This is why the world vote worked, not because of the lariat, but it was a bundled package. You don't get one without the other. And just like that, they were somewhere else. Josephine did a small belly breathing technique to steady herself. She wasn't really doing it because she had no belly here, but it helped to steady her, perhaps out of a psychic muscle memory. Once recovered, she looked around, and asked the only question for such a circumstance. Where are we now, sender? The sender adopted an odd posture that seemed formal and Josephine thought classical. It was a slight bowing position that looked fitting on Bill Campana's body, which the sender was still using. She noticed that Bill was no longer wearing any of the doctor's garb. He was wearing formal slacks and a white dress shirt with the top buttons undone to suggest nonchalance and show off his chest hair. It looked expensive, tailor-made like most of Bill's clothes when they retired to the dame. It was an outfit from 2011. He wore a name tag that said Guillermo. They must have had guests at the old dame. It was that type of ensemble. But, Josephine realized, that frame was no longer hers. Using Bill Campana's mouth, the alien intelligence said, Awakening in the middle of a prodigiously tough snore and sitting up in bed to get her thoughts together, Josephine Wu had no occasion to be told that the bell was again upon the stroke of one. She felt that she was restored to the consciousness in the right nick of time for the special purpose of holding a conference with the second messenger dispatched to her through the Alpha's intervention. Josephine, like so many times tonight, was utterly lost. She said, Speak plainly, please, Sender. I need clarification. The second messenger? Do you mean the beta messenger? this is not that why this is the ghost of democracy 20 seconds present the second messenger the second visiting spirit Charles Dickens Scrooge you're like Scrooge in this scenario oh boy Bill said stretching out his collar with his finger WorldGov cures Burkitt lymphoma and eradicates Dickens not sure how that sheet balances they stood in a hallway or a passageway to be more accurate since this felt distinctly like a ship There was a certain odor on older ships that relied on recyclers to clean the air and reuse it as much as possible. It smelled of those systems running a bit too long with a hint of chlorine and salt. The air was muggy, but cool. Not as cold as Washington DC had just been, but cool enough to need layers. The passageway was lined with multiple numbered hatches, hardened to protect against a breach. Josephine-spied emergency bulkheads spread out throughout this great long corridor. The place was designed to seal itself off and prevent atmosphere loss. It was a ship, to be certain. She saw that the passageway had a slight curve to it as it bent out of the visual sight on both ends. It was a large ship, then. The doors all had a red light above them. There was a monitor a few feet away hanging on the wall. The sender stood beside it and pointed. Josephine closed the distance until she could see what was on display. The largest portion read the time, 0101. 37. and in large grey letters it read Nocturnal Lockdown, Housing 2 The rest was a readout of air pressure and a checklist of safety items, all in the green What ship is this? Where and when are we? This is not a ship It is Deep Pressure Manufacturing Facility Atlantis Circa present day, in the grand scheme of things Last year's Democracy 22nd, to be exact What are we to see here? Josephine asked Another lesson, another ghost. He's right through there, Labor Quarters 2C17. The sender walked to the door that was labeled with that number. The paint was worn. Once white, it was now coated in the brown stain of ticking time. A deep blue stripe painted below knee level was scraped and gorged by years of accidental daily abuse. The place needed a good cleaning and a fresh coat of paint. No ship in the world Navy would be left to look this beat down and rough around the edges. The sender walked to the door and waved her flat hand up and down in front of it. The door dematerialized and the sender did a strange, exaggerated hand motion, gesturing to the now absent door. She looked like a magician's assistant showing surprise at the trick of making the door vanish. Go on in. They still can't see you. Josephine walked in first. The quarters were small. There was a table with four round, cushionless stools all built as natural, unmovable extensions of the metal floor. A stainless steel toilet sat exposed on the back wall, and a large monitor identical to the one in the hallway was the only illumination. Below the current time, this monitor had a countdown going of just under five hours. Four men in identical grade jumpsuits sat on the edge of the four bunks lining the wall. Everything here looked exhausted. The clothing was thin and worn too much. The men were thin and had complexions that reminded her of pallid candles her grandmother used to make with plant wax. They wore identical short haircuts, but each had variations on a theme of goatee. One looked to be in his late sixties and was a study in wiry muscle and manual labor. She would place two in their mid thirties and the fourth was 20, if that. Bags hung under their eyes. Aside from clothes hanging on hooks welded to the wall, four books on the table, and a stack of workers' boots by the door, there were no physical possessions here. The older man was speaking. Well, that's the current request. Not a disruption in production, but flaws in the product. I'm not an engineer, and I'm sure as shit not a back engineer, so I told him I didn't know what we could do. They want us to make some shit break, a powder keg in the axle grease? I'm your man. What the fuck are we even crafting in our section? Much less, how do we muck it up? For that, I turned to younger, more peaceful and capable minds. I'm a demolition man." The youngest of the group just shrugged. He looked angry at what they were just told. You could see a desire to do damage, clear as beard stubble across his young, taut face. To suddenly not be able to do this damage was filling him with rage. He said, "'This is fantastic. "'We could bring this whole fucking place down, "'make it collapse under the pressure. "'We could blow up systems, we could riot, "'make our voices heard, and we're supposed to do what? "'Harm the output? Are you fucking kidding me? "'I thought this was a war.' "'He threw something small against the wall. "'The gesture seemed impotent, "'since Josephine couldn't see an item or hear it impact. "'The young man petulantly slammed his back "'to the wall of his bunk. "'One of the 30-somethings said, "'Take it easy, Hugo. It's a rebellion, not a war.' A war we can't win. We don't need to get violent. He adjusted his belt in an odd way that made him look like he was about to panic. Oh, violent is exactly what... The older man cut off the younger by simply saying his name like a two-syllable bark. Hugo! The second 30-something said, Well, I know Third Shift had trouble, what was it, two cycles ago? They did something wrong with the nutrient flow that fed into the vat of the ceramic walls or whatever it is we're baking. One of the Dolphys tested the batch and it came back in the red. It had fractures in it that would have been dangerous under extreme G conditions, say if the ceramic was used as a bulkhead and was put under thrust. Go on, the older man said. What do we aim to do with that information? Well, said the 30-something, we need to figure out how to alter the nutrient feed so the ceramics don't grow properly. We know that's an exploit, right? If we can duplicate it, we harm output. Who knows what impact that has down the line, maybe more than planting bombs down here if we make a space station collapse or some crazy shit. Rate-limiting step, the one in charge said from his bunk, smoothing out the military style bedsheet that was so tightly tucked, they caught the flaw. It was all scrapped. Yeah, but you said one of the Dolphys was friendly to the cause. If he could fake the test results, get assigned here and look the other way, program whatever the diagnostic device is to give a false reading. I don't know. He could be our in. We could flaw the batch. He could help greenlight it, and if it got flagged, nobody seems criminal. We don't understand any of what we're doing. We just follow the training manuals and build alien shit. I mean, hell, it probably won't work. A lot of stuff needs to line up just right to make flawed product, and who knows what it would do out there in the real world. The man pointed distinctly upward as he said, real world, indicating life down here at the bottom of the sea floor, was somehow fictitious. The old one said, ''No, we don't know, but it's a start, Rudolph. Let's work this. It's the best we got.'' ''Rudolph,'' the sender said, ''His name is Rudolph. You can't make this stuff up.'' The 30-year-old, who had remained silent, fiddled with his belt one more time and said softly, ''I'm sorry.'' ''I'm sorry.'' He looked down at his stockinged feet. ''I'm so sorry. I didn't have a choice.'' ''What did you do, Humphreys?'' the old man asked. Ah, Humphreys. The tone was a mix of realization, pity, and disappointment. The older man got down on his knees and placed his hands behind his head with his fingers interlaced. What, Rudolph said, what is happening? The door slid open with a clacking gate and the sound of metal teeth and teeth. On the other side were two bureaucrats from WorldGov in official uniform and two members of the Global Police Force. The GPF were in an abbreviated battle dress with no torsion skirts and no lances, Josephine supposed the lances may not be able to get a charge down here in Atlantis. There were probably no Mo at these depths. They had sabers on their side. One of them spoke with the cadence of a practiced line, a line that was now devoid of all syntactic meaning, but it was important to say under the circumstances. You are formally under arrest by the global police force. You have all rights demanded of you of the world vote, assuming a peaceful surrender. The young Hugo made a jerking motion with his sleeve but nothing seemed to happen. He did it again as he lunged forward, and this time, a thin white sliver about three inches long appeared in his hand. He thrust it forward toward one of the police, but fell short by several inches as the officer expertly dodged back and executed a front kick. The kick met its mark and slammed the young Hugo back into the stainless steel wall. "'Bone knife!' the young officer yelled in a tone meant to evoke caution by the others, not fear in himself." In a well-practiced motion, the officer's saber was in his hand, and he executed a downward swipe. It met Hugo's arm just above the elbow and severed it off without losing any momentum. There was a burst of blood in the room, and Josephine could smell the minerals of raw life slipping from the boy's fresh stump. The officer rounded out the motion of his saber with a twirling arc that went above Hugo's head and then came down on his clavicle. She heard the saber's vibration as the blade hummed to horrible life and it cut clear down to Hugo's pelvis before meeting enough resistance to stop the slash. The insides of Hugo spilled out to the floor plating with a hot sound of slop and his corpse fell among his own innards. The bloody saber was thrust towards Rudolph as the young officer yelled, "'Position!' Rudolph yelled back one word, "'Assumed!' and he instantly kneeled like the old man had but needed to stop and vomit before he could steady himself and place his hands behind his back. The old man screamed, it's not a bone knife, you fucking murderer. It's a ceramic sliver from the cutting room floor. It's just a piece of your ceramic. The old man's hand slid from behind his head. He was reaching towards Hugo as if to comfort him or hug him or apologize. But the horror of what remained of Hugo was too much even for this hardened deviant heart. Position, the officer screamed as an order. Assumed, the old man said, red with rage, giving the GPF a look that promised revenge and future violence. One of the bureaucrats grabbed the one called Humphreys by the arm and led him from the cell quickly. The bureaucrat started to remove the belt Humphreys had been fiddling with, speaking in a low, congratulatory tone to the man. More police ran in and the sender eased Josephine back into the passageway. Josephine suddenly felt her nerves catch up with her. She was shaking, felt nauseous, Why are you showing me these horrible things? Did this really happen? Indeed it did, last year to this very day. Hugo had been down here for a few years and went from being a kid with a lot of down votes to a good and proper deviant. Well, a deviant in training. And I'm showing these things because you need to learn. Learn what, sender? Josephine asked as she did another breathing exercise to calm herself. Not to bring a shard of ceramic to a vibro-saber fight for one thing, But I think you can suss out the rest. You tell me. Why did I show you this? It is compare contrast if you remember my snarky comment from earlier. Josephine closed her eyes to think, but she just saw the fluid arc of the saber as it slid through Hugo's arm and then down his torso like a zipper. She opened her eyes and steadied herself with a practiced single breath from the winter drift technique. The sender sensed what she had just done and nodded in approval with a surprised look penetrating Bill's face. Josephine finally said, "'You're showing me that society before the world vote "'and after have parallels? "'That there are flaws in every system? "'That we have to do better? "'That WorldGov can do better?' The sender said, "'Well, it can't do any better by virtue of its nature, and issued a shrug involving hands more than shoulders. "'And don't be too liberal with the we. "'This isn't a we. "'This is a me and a you and a them. "'And you have a choice to make, Josephine.' That is ultimately the point of this. A terrible moment from your life yet to come where your decision and the decision of one other human will utterly rewrite the flow of your entire species. No pressure, though, the sender said. And just like that, they were in another location. This one she recognized instantly. She was in the combat information center of the Eleanor Gray. She lived on this ship for years, but inside of a framing chamber. Ironically, her familiarity with the ship came mostly from binge watching all 8 seasons of the reality show called My Life on Eleanor when she was a child, long before she was old enough to serve on that ship. The show followed the young science officer Shafali Dalal. Cameras rolled for her first day on the ship, her love affair with Katina Nassim, and her rise in the ranks while assigned to the Eleanor Grey. Sadly. Lieutenant Commander DeLal had retired by the time Josephine was assigned to that venerable old lady of the World Navy. The bridge was empty, just her and the sender. But the screens indicated action. She stood near the diagnostic officer's station, and she saw damage to the hull in multiple places. The damage was across tactically important areas of the ship, something that indicated weapons fire, not a collision. The clock on the screens was frozen. They were standing in a still life not an action scene. Josephine looked to the main viewer. The view screen was split between two images, a habit most naval captains found distracting, but was preferred by Bill Campana when she served under him. One half was a tactical image of several fleets that looked to be engaging in combat. She saw battleships, corvettes, gunships, carriers, and the literals normally used to defend an orbit. There were dozens of support vessels and a horde of small fighters, raiders, and bombers swarming the larger capital ships. Of course, it was all just symbols and dots, since the distance of such a battle were too great for the human eye to make out all but the closest, largest craft. The other half of the view screen was a close-up camera of the bladder that normally strapped giant rocks and hunks of ice to the nose of the ship. Now the bladder was modified. It was a docking clamp, and it was docked to something that anyone on Earth would know it was docked to an iconic segment of the Lariat itself. One reason for the Eleanor Gray's enduring importance was that it was meant to push the Lariat to its final position at the moment it activated. Very few ships could generate enough thrust to move so much mass efficiently, but the Razor class could. However, Josephine was quite certain that none of WorldGov's plans included a naval battle involving multiple factions. The senders snapped Bill's fingers and suddenly, The alpha was added to the still life. The old man was frozen in time. His white robes flowed wildly as if perturbed by strong currents in the air. More importantly, his outstretched hands encircled but did not touch an orb of such purely reflective chrome that it was hard to look at. Light bent and angled from it, refracted in perfect ways that the human eye had a hard time accepting. The orb floated in the air at chest level slightly larger than a soccer ball. His eyes glowed the white of a lightning storm, bright as a welding torch. Josephine found she was covering her eyes with her hand to look at him. Somehow this action reminded her of the show on the television back in 1993, St. Nicholas shielding his face from the light of the one who was meant to guide his path. Alpha's face was a calm concentration. The sender snapped again. Next to appear was a dark figure of stark contrast to the Alpha, a woman, fairly short and muscular. Her hair was pulled into a proper naval bun, and it mimicked the dark color of the World Navy Captain's uniform. Her name tape said Campana, so this was Bill's daughter. She was pointing toward the view screen. Unlike the Alpha's calm face, hers was distorted in a frozen scream, Two veins bulged in her thick neck, making the tight, high, smart color seem uncomfortable. Her outstretched hand was indicating something occurring on the main view screen. The sender said, The phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. When it came near her, Josephine bent down upon her knee. For in the very air through which this spirit moved, it seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. But for this it would have been difficult to detach its figure from the night and separate it from the darkness by which it was surrounded. The confusing sentence was punctuated with another snap of fingers, and this time the bridge was filled with its entire crew and then some. The seven station officers were active at their posts, The lighting shifted as the colored condition light near the lift came to life in a burning red. The officers were all engaged, panicked, screaming, and filled with the intense emotion of a naval battle. Six Marines were also here in the CIC. Three of them surrounded the Alpha with sabers drawn. The other three stood near the lift, pointing their own swords at a man and a woman wearing black framers robes. The woman was injured, face bloodied, and the man held her, shielded her with his body between the marines and his charge what is happening here sender when are we now why this is the ghost of the 22nd of democracy yet to come a year from now just days before the new year's when the lariat is set to create a portal from the scutum crux arm to your orion spur and let an entire fleet of alien vessels pop into earth space and an entire fleet of earth vessels pop out through the other side the lariat is literally closing or tightening your call and how are we seeing the future is that a gift you possess i see time in odd ways that are difficult to explain to a species so linear as for this happening i won't be am not and have not been here so i can't say much is it accurate more or less a prediction really based on the analysis of our best merged intelligence kind of like what you would call an artificial intelligence but more mergey. It's a best guess. For example, I don't really know what music will be playing, but I know the players, the ships, the captains, who is likely to be on the bridge, who is likely to arrive any second. Mostly, I wish I knew what song he picked. A song, Josephine asked, but her voice never rose to indicate it was a question. Of course, the one you call the alpha always travels with music from the world before. His world. I went with James Brown, He was the godfather of soul, you know. The payback. The one you call Alpha played it for me once. It's on his short list. Shall I reveal the reveal? I suppose yes, sender. Reveal what you have brought me here for. The sender snapped Bill's fingers one last time, and the scene came to startling life. First, it was hard not to notice the song. For one thing, there was no other sound provided for the now-moving scene playing out. Everyone's voice was on mute. There was no noise, Not even the sound of feet shuffling on ground or the klaxon of the battle alarm. Just the song. Second, it was rather loud. And third, Josephine had never heard music like it in her life. It was a bass with a wah-wah guitar and women wailing in the background, using a type of harmony that played with dissonance and disharmony more than with perfect vocal unification. A man with a very gruff voice, presumably this James Brown, the godfather of soul, was singing. Though to be more accurate, he was speaking, and in single words more than lines of verse. Payback. Revenge. I'm mad. Need some get back. The big payback. The women would echo him from time to time in their dissonance. As Josephine watched the action spring to life, the most prominent feature was the chromatic orb in front of Alpha, It was a light with arcs of pure white electricity that coursed through the old man's robes and beard. It wasn't wind that was stirring his garments, but pure power, arcing mercurially around the Alpha and extending about 10 feet around him. It seemed to emanate from the orb, but it also came from the old man's calm eyes. The Marines surrounding him were shaking in terror, but holding their ground, clearly assuming the Alpha was a threat. Motion caught her eyes, and Josephine looked to Claire Campana. She was yelling something to her first mate, a handsome commander of Indian descent with a name tape that read Begay. Begay seemed to hear the captain's order and repeat it as per naval policy. The captain turned to the Alpha and screamed something else as the condition red light blinked in a pattern that indicated battle stations. The ship lurched and the diagnostic officer read something. Her face, a practiced calm meant to make death and damage seem like statistics, not human lives. The male framer held his hand out to the Marines and closed his eyes with an intense focus. Unexpectedly, two of the Marines that were threatening him and the female framer turned on each other, refocusing who was at the point of their vibro sabers. They screamed back and forth as if they were suddenly realizing they had always been on the opposite sides of this war. The male framer stared at the final marine with a look of hate so pure that it was almost as disturbing as the murders from earlier in the night. The final marine dropped his sword and clutched his head as his face turned flushed purple with blood and his eyes bulged. The marine held his hands up to both of his ears and was screaming. He dropped to his knees as the framer stepped towards him, hand outstretched above his head. The female framer put her hand on the male's back, pleading something with him. The male framer stepped back and lowered his hand, face relaxing at her words. The Marine on the ground was no longer red-faced, but he started weeping and collapsed on the deck plating. The two others were still screaming at each other, what looked like threats as they circled, both ready to strike. A voice penetrated the music, unfurled and implacable. It was the Alpha. He said, "'Decisions, Clarabelle. The time is now. There is but one future left for you to branch into. Her voice was allowed to be heard. It can't be done, Alpha. Even if I could decide, it would be impossible to succeed. There are just too many of them, she screamed, taking a step toward him. The lightning seemed to sense her presence and intensify in her direction, keeping her at bay next to the Marines. In the periphery of Josephine's vision, she saw something strange about the lift leading to the CIC. The door was, of course, on lockdown to secure the bridge during battle stations, but the very stuff of it was somehow not right. The doors were suddenly striating through the color spectrum and shimmering as if water were reflecting on them. Passing through the solid matter as if it were sea foam came Josephine Wu. Came herself, another version, a future version. Josephine noticed that her hair was longer and it flowed freely instead of being tied in a naval bun as hers was now. This Josephine's black framers uniform was replaced with the white robes of a messenger. As she stepped through the lift, she slowly panned her head around the bridge. She waved a hand across the space in front of her, and all six of the Marines relaxed. They dropped or sheathed their weapons, and they were filled with such a calm, they were a complete juxtaposition to the rest of the CIC. The one in pain on the floor was suddenly recovered. The Marines smiled as if they saw something beautiful. One sniffed the air as if catching an intoxicating ocean breeze. He sat down and pointed to the corner of the bridge, eyes wide at the beauty he saw there. Josephine had somehow done this to them. Commander Begay stood up, put his hand on a sidearm, but before he could draw it, this Josephine looked at him, and oddly, he sat down at his station, yawning, and fell fast asleep. Decisions, Josephine. The time is now. There is but one future left for you to branch into, the alpha said, eyes white with fire. The ship lurched below them in a way that made Josephine's middle ear woozy for a moment. Another hit from their attacker, or attackers. More damage done to the Eleanor Gray. Everyone looked at the view screen to see if the docking clamps were holding on to the lariat. Josephine looked as well, Apparently they were. This new Josephine walked up to the Alpha. She held her flat palm out in front of her and the arcs of energy let her pass unmolested. Her own robe was roiling in the waves of electricity, but her eyes were normal. She put her hand on Alpha's back and she said, My decision has been made, Alpha. You should be more concerned about yourself. Her hand gripped the Alpha's robe tightly and she closed her eyes as she reached into her robes and grabbed something. Just as she thrust her hand out, the sender and Josephine were suddenly on the grand causeway of the Tehachapi. The sender was wearing a bright red costume with white fur, similar to what the animated version of St. Nicholas was wearing on the television set in their first timeline. He wore a floppy red hat topped with a puffy white ball, and in his hands he held a fake white beard. He spoke more of his nonsense as he had done other times tonight, saying, Yes, and the bedpost was her own, the bed was her own, the room was her own, best and happiest of all, the time before her was her own to amends in. I will live in the past, the present, and the future, Josephine repeated as she scrambled out of bed. The spirits of all three shall strive within me, O Bill Campana, heaven and Christmas time be praised for this. I say it on my knees, old Bill, on my knees. As he fell silent, the only other sound was the flow of a fake stream running down the center of the lane and the almost invisible constant of the engine's thrum. The sender pointed into the window of the seven days shop and a giant plucked dead bird hung in the window. Like many things tonight, its presence was sudden and visceral. A small boy wearing archaic clothes from several centuries ago stood looking in the window, his hands pressed to the glass. Now's your chance, Josephine Wu. Go for it. The sender pointed at the boy, unable to contain her excitement. Josephine breathed. The sight of the boy was very off-putting. Even though she knew they were in the place of dreams, seeing another human being who wasn't Fang roam these halls was not right. Funny how straining under the bonds of isolation for a year would suddenly be the norm when faced with another human being in her rather large living space on this secluded ship's deck. The sender handed Josephine an old scroll of parchment tied together with a pretty red bow. Josephine undid the bow, rolled the paper open, and saw what appeared to be the script from a play. It was a dialogue between two characters. One was named, logically, Josephine, and the other was Boy in Sunday Clothes. Please, please, please say it, the sender entreated. Josephine doubted that this was going to help her become a messenger or connect with this alien being, but to use this priceless time to play a game of acting seemed direly important to the sender. She had to remind herself that this being was not human, so the peculiarities of character must be forgiven. Thus, Josephine held up the scroll and read aloud, starting with her first line. What's today? The boy in Sunday clothes asked, Eh? Josephine, What's today, my fine fellow? Boy in Sunday clothes. Today? Today? Why the 22nd of democracy josephine the 22nd of democracy i haven't missed it the spirits have done it all in one night they can do anything they like of course they can of course they can hello my fine fellow you can stop from there the sender said you're really not selling it which i can handle mostly we're just out of time You ask him about the turkey. He thinks you're a walker and are putting him on. You give him a crown for his efforts. The bird, which gets eaten, goes to the little crippled boy who had endeared himself to you. It's a a whole thing. But the alignment is shifting and our merger is almost done. For tonight. I'm afraid I don't understand the literary reference. I'm truly sorry, Sender. You seemed very excited to present this to me. Yeah, well, sometimes even the classics die. Sender, back on the bridge, or more accurately, in the future, what decision do I have to make? The same one as Captain Claire Campana. The same one as we all do, my dear. To see or not to see? The sender laughed, continued. You must decide between the two great sides warring over this pale blue dot of yours. You need to be sympathetic to WorldGov and their efforts to open to the Keldemocracia, and you have to be equally sympathetic to the Deviants and their efforts to open to the Cincture. The cincture, Josephine asked, shaking her head. More's the reason you and I need to chat when the stars align, my dear. You must know of both sides. There are far more than two factions involved, but only two who can speak with humans. To see or not to see? Who do we serve? What side are we on? How do we make the galaxy a better place for those we care about? What is the cost of our action? Our inaction? What is the cost? Josephine said... Those things that the Framers and my future self were doing, those can't be done by humans, can they? But of course they can, the sender said. How do you think the Deviants won the World Vote War? They lost the World Vote War. Sorry, we will win the World Vote War, have always won the World Vote War. Time tenses throw me off. And speaking of time, mine is up for this evening, Josephine Wu. You will have a year to forge your decision and you won't know your decision until that very moment that we just saw. You'll think you have several times, but you won't have, not until right then, walking into that very moment for the second time, give or take a song. You have a year to train, to master, to be the person you were in that image, to hone the gifts that the deviants used a century ago in their fight as rebels. They are lost gifts, concealed by, and impossible to recreate by, WorldGov but not forgotten ones. I will see you on another evening, Josephine, when Christmas Eve doesn't make me do foolish things. Please do foolish things, sender. I'm very confused by them, but I suspect they are there for a reason and will help us to ground me through otherwise disturbing images and emotions. The sender used Bill's face to smile a smile full of love and said, I wish I could take that sentiment, roll it up like a newspaper and slap the one you call Alpha in the fucking face with it. A hundred years with that one, and you get it in one night. Perhaps, Josephine said with a smile, it was a Christmas miracle. The sender placed a fake beard on Bill's face, winked with one eye, and touched his nose in a strange but meaningful gesture. He issued an artifice of a laugh, an exaggerated ho-ho-ho as he rubbed his belly. And just like that, He wasn't Bill Campana anymore. He wasn't a he. She was there, the sender, a face large as the horizon, a cloud of colors twirling and pooling like rich inks pouring into a tank of water. The face had no features but laughed and crackled with tireless lightning roaming deep in her bruised clouds. It was the size of a planet, this face, this being, this cloud, and it laughed somehow a laugh of coruscation, a sigh of hurricanes that bridged the gap between the stars and began the descent that Josephine had feared, the descent into madness. So the stage is set for Josephine's quest to become a messenger and for a very strange scene to play itself out on the bridge of the Eleanor Grey. Um, as always, thank you for listening. Um, if you go to the mindframepodcast.com, uh, you can find all sorts of really great merchandise that you can buy if you're loving the story and you want to represent. You can also find the books by myself and by Zach Smith, the host of our sit down episodes uh, for sale in the store there. Remember to check out Podbelly. You can find some really great podcasts on there, such as Rock and Roll Beer Guy and From a Gen X Point of View, as well as um, a whole lot of other ones on various subjects and and various themes. Uh, You can reach us on social media at, at all of the platforms. On Facebook, we are Mindframe Podcast. On Instagram, we are The Mindframe Podcast. On Twitter, we are the Mindframe Pod, and on Reddit, we are R slash Mindframe So as always, thank you for giving us time um, in your ears. And remember that the Lariat is closing.